word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. If you followed uh, any of my work over the years, um, you will recognize this next guest as someone that I'm a big fan of and have spent time. I actually met uh, Conrad Wolfram years ago in London. Um, could not have been more generous with his time, and he has been that way um, since then. So this is just such a timely conversation. We're going to talk about ChatGPT and AI and education. And let me give you a little background on Conrad, because I, I know him now so well in what he's accomplished, and many of you will when you hear some of, of the background here. But he is the strategic director and European co-founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, founder of computerbasedmath.org. He's also the author of the 2020 book, The Maths Fix, you know, Mathematica, you know, the background with he and his brother uh, and Siri. I mean, when you talk about uh, computational uh, basically scientists in my in my mind, uh, there's no better or brighter than Conrad Wolfram. And, and Conrad, so nice to spend some time with you. This could not be more of a timely conversation. Um, I personally have been watching and following ChatGPT. I've been trying to watch all the news coverage. I watched 60 Minutes, which uh, is a very famous news program here in the States with Google CEO and all that they're doing. And and then watching, we'll talk a little bit about some documentaries as well that I've seen. And it makes me question chat GPT and the AI world in general. And what happens when, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll represent the lay people and you can correct me here, Conrad, but what happens when we enter a world where the answers are there? How does that sort of basically upend the approach that we have had as a civilization in trying to uncover, discover, and revel in that process when, in fact, now we are at a point, which I think maybe the general public doesn't realize how far along we actually are. I think that they're still thinking, oh, this is off into the future. I I'd love to hear your thoughts on how far they've actually come in the technology. See, I don't think the answers are there. I think the trick here is to go to the next level of answers. Okay. And I think that's what the history of industrial revolutions, if you can call them that, have done. You know, when we were all farmers, effectively, and then we got machinery to do that, then we could do other things. Then we were manually making things. Then we got machinery, electricity, and everything else. We could zoom up to the next level. Then we, you know, in Drucker's terms, did the knowledge economy where in developed countries, most people were not physically doing stuff all the time. They were using knowledge as the primary uh, economic driver, in a sense. And I think now we're in an era of what I call the AI age. You could also call it the computational knowledge economy, in which we're going up to the next level again, or we could, right? And just like with previous setups, you can choose to compete with machinery that's there, or perhaps we as humans can go to the next level. And it's it's closer to home this time, right? Because for most of history, what's considered to be quintessentially human 
is thinking. And it appears now we built machines that think. You know, I mean, you can argue that, what that means. Now, but for those that aren't that are that are listening, they can't see your reaction. You're smiling a bit. It, it, should we not be? Should we be scared? Should we be reticent about that potentiality? I mean, the Google CEO, when he's talking to me 60 Minutes, he said, those that are going to basically face incredible obstacles professionally are those knowledge workers. Yep. The knowledge economy. And I mean, so the, the, the problem is, the two. basically, I'm optimistic. Okay. Is my underlying thing. But just like, as I've been describing these other industrial that doesn't mean that for a whole set of people, in a particular time frame, it'll be really bad. It doesn't mean there'll be catastrophic problems along the way. But the problem is that any technology that has bite has problems. And in a sense, the bigger the bite, the bigger the misuse potential. Do I think in net this is good? I think net it's good. But net is not the whole story, right? So um I think we'll, and, and part of this is also how we manage it, whether it manages us, to what extent it manages us, we manage it. That's a mixture of uh, how we regulate, uh, how we understand. I mean, one of the big problems with new technology is understanding what goes wrong, right? I, you know, assumption that we would already know, <laughs> right? No, but that's not really the case. And I think actually, to be fair, that's ever the case fully. I mean, you know, when you first, First got cars. It was like, okay, uh, well, we have car accidents. I mean, it's kind of obvious there would be yeah, that. Maybe we need belts, right? Right, exactly. I mean, it really wasn't obvious. I mean, the the whole I think it was Volvo came up with seatbelts, right, uh, in the current form. The idea you'd hold somebody in a car that was crashing rather than just let them fall out is not. I mean, it seems obvious now. It wasn't obvious then. So there, there were lots, you know, how people steal cars, the type of car crime there is. I mean, you can go through all sorts of things which are now obvious. But which at the time were new manifestations, which were a bad factor of the technology. And we have exactly the same. Now, what's difficult this time is it is, so to speak, invisible at some level. It's very hard to understand what it's doing. It's not like it's a machine. The machine turns. You can see the power going in. You know, it's, it's difficult with respect to that. And it's very quintessentially human. It's what humans believe they do better than the rest of the animal kingdom. Think. And it seems to be impinging on that. Should we be concerned about the pace? I mean, when I think about technology, and again, I am simplifying this. One thing we've benefited from is this, in essence, slow and steady, and every sector has been a little bit different. But in, that, in general, this sort of steady scaffolding of, of innovation, this iterative innovation around a given technology, where we could, in essence, we could, the software adoption curve, we could kind of get used to it. We could apply it in our social, uh, you know, in our communities, in our homes, see that in our professional settings or our schools and begin to ask better, bigger, maybe deeper questions, apply maybe safety, these sorts of things. But I'm just wondering the pace, the speed, and I'll give you an example. So there's a documentary that I highly recommend. It's a, the Unknown series on Netflix. And they looked at AI and it's called Killer Robots. It's quite a hyperbolic title, <laughs> but it's about AI in the military. And they talk about two researchers in North Carolina that were getting ready to speak at, I, I forget, maybe it was an AI conference. Uh, and I believe it was in Europe. And on a Friday, Conrad, they changed their algorithm and they wanted to see what would happen on Monday before they sort of headed out. They changed it, it was either a one to a zero, a zero to one. <laughs> okay. And they got into the lab on Monday. There were over 40,000 
unique algorithms, basically recipes for biological weapons. They never intended that. But that's what it, you know, we can clarify what it is, but AI did. And that kind of speed and pace, I'm just wondering, are we built? You made a comment earlier that I, I, I wanna, I'm going to go back and listen to because it talked about we're coming closer to ourselves, which is just such a powerful, um, that should be maybe your next book, Conrad. So, <laughs> what a powerful thought to kind of sit with. But if that is the case, can we keep up with you, right? Because to your point, how are we going to know what questions to ask, what safety or, or regulations to put in if it's developing that quickly? I mean, I think, yeah, the pace is the problem. I think, honestly, again, we're back to a trajectory over time. If you look back through history, I mean, it's a bit nonlinear, right? Because, you know, the pace of innovation at certain points in history has been quite high in a certain place, right? But overall, for many generations, things often didn't change very much. Uh and I think the pace has been accelerating for the last hundred years in different ways. Right now, it's it's accelerating even more. And the rate of change is high. And that's hard. That's hard. And part of the answer, I think, is educate people. Part of the disaster of our current mainstream education around the world is it's not changing very quickly. The core subjects into which people are educated you know, have a sort of 10-year cycle of curriculum change. Well, to your point, I mean, ain't going to make it. Ain't gonna, very American of you, Conrad. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not. So, okay, I'm so glad you pivoted into the education space. So a question for you. Um, let's sort of travel back in time or, or, or maybe fast forward, bring you as Conrad Wolfram as a teenager now in 2023, all right? I'm curious because obviously by nature as a scientist, you're very curious, right? You've got to be curious to be um, in, in your profession. How would a Conrad in high school or university now be influenced by chat GPT or AI just sort of writ large in the subsequent career paths that you would consider? Because I think fundamentally it, it would, the, the branch, the the offshoot branch might go in a different direction than what it did and where we stand today with someone with your background and your industry in general. Yeah, I mean, I some my initial reaction has to go other way around. I mean, it's like, do you plan your career based on the calculation of what you think is going to work well, or do you base it on what you think you're interested in and good at? and follow it through. Now, maybe that we're interested in good at doesn't pay well, and you can't, you can't live that maybe. On the other hand, just doing something you didn't really give a damn about that you thought was lucrative, because it was lucrative. Uh, I'm not sure is particularly, I mean, maybe, maybe makes you more money. Some might, argue, doesn't. some might argue, though, that that university students in your country and in mine, that's exactly the the, the choice that they're, they're faced with, which is I, I, yeah. I understand. And I think right. it's not good. I think one of the things that's happened is the whole system has become proceduralized. And as you correctly point out, some of the things into which it's proceduralized may be taken over. I think what we need is to get back to what it makes people, you know, how do we get the humans in charge? What is it in education that we need so that kind of like, you know, you're the manager of the AI, not vice versa. I, I don't have all the answers. I mean, I, as you know, one of the things I 
believe strongly in is a core of what I call computational literacy. And I compare this to literacy, the rise of mass literacy, which I think happens sort of in the 18th, 19th century in, in places like UK. Um, and, you know, from an era when basically very few people could read and write properly in a reasonably good way. You know, as I say, high priests and aristocrats, they told everyone what to believe. <laughs> and that was dangerous. Some of them were good people and they tried to do their best. Some of them were not good people. And the whole population was sort of dependent on that. And I think we're in a period now where we have very few people who are computationally literate. And yet most decisions, including by AIs, are made on the basis of the computational decision-making process. So it's kind of like if you don't if you don't have any grounding and experience in that, you're left out, you're disenfranchised from most of what is being decided somehow. So much of the population doesn't have any idea. You know, when you quote, I don't know, statistics on the pandemic, or you know, here's a graph about how vaccines work, you know, all of this stuff, any any of these things, right? Doesn't matter what the but all of these decisions we are thrust into our lives now are based on a, a claim of computational understanding, computational thinking. And I think the problem there is that, you know, I, and you've seen this, right, in, in, in recent years. So here's what happens, and I think happened before, before literacy. You know, you get a bunch of experts who tell you X, Y, and Z, Z, uh, and some of them are good, some of them are not good. Some of them overclaim what they can say because they get the loudest voice on media, et cetera. Those who don't really get it say, oh God, I listen to these experts. And actually in the end, what they said didn't really pan out. It didn't, didn't, wasn't quite right. So then they say, we can't really believe any expert. They don't know what they're talking about. So then we get into this sort of mode, sort of almost a pre-science mode where it's kind of like, well, it was all hocus pocus. I mean, we'll just go with whatever hocus pocus there is because basically none of it, None of the experts write by me, which isn't fair. And there are significant so implications, that, Conrad. I mean, it, I mean, we're talking about, I, I think, really the shaking of the global economy, the ground beneath the global economy. I mean, China has come out saying they've got so many graduates and not enough jobs. And yet we're also talking about a knowledge economy and knowledge workers that will be potentially out of work. That, to me, then flips the whole thing on its head. And it's, to your point, can we ever get in front of the AI and manage the AI. And I, you know, I don't, I want to be optimistic, but I struggle to think to, to your point, because really when you're taught what you were just referencing to me, that's, it's, it's almost as if it's like, um, if you go out and you're going to, you're going to sun, right. You want to get some sun or whatever, you know, you don't want that to penetrate so deeply into your skin, right? You put sunblock on. Nothing is penetrating deeply enough for people to question and debate and to think critically. They're just sort of passing it on to the next thing. We have like too much sunscreen on our species. And so we don't want to take in information and say, I don't know if I believe Conrad Wolf from a Rod Berger, but I've got some other thoughts. I'm going to apply that to the context with, with which I live in the environment that I occupy. And that feels incredibly dangerous, especially when we apply that to education. Because to your point, we're in this 10-year cycle. Well, we're already out of luck. I mean, when I think about business students, and then I hear Google and all these other CEOs saying, you know what? The financial sector is going to be wiped. You're not going to need humans because we already have all the algorithms. We can figure this out. This is a math problem. 
in very basic terms. What are those young people going to do? Like I think about my kids. I'm sure that you think about your, like what will they do when they think about the profession that they'll pursue, i.e. what would it, what, a, what would a 15 year old Conrad Wolfram want to be doing now in 2023 with the skill set that you have? And not that you would plan that far in advance, but I do have a hunch that it would influence the way in which you might attack whatever career you'd like to uh, be a part of. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the problem is, I mean, there's a sort of doomsday, you know, the machines take over the world completely and the humans are left out. Lots of things are possible, but I have a feeling that, I mean, it, it depends. We need to somehow keep this thing where we we try and make the humans be the end consumer. And in the end, then certain sorts of human things matter. Now, I mean, look at the industries that have come up in the last 20 years, unimaginable in all sorts of ways. What's driven those? What, who's been successful in that? I mean, a lot of people even successful in different ways, but I I think that, you know, the 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 programmer who dropped out and turned up, you know, starting a big, a big successful Silicon Valley company, wouldn't be wouldn't have been who you had predicted before. Now, some people have lost out for sure. I think there's a big middle class that, so to speak, lost out, where there were people who were doing things that, frankly, have been proceduralized into what computers already do and have done for twenty years. And I think we'll see the same sort of potential hollowing out. What we can't do is just teach people at, you know, they've got to be able to deploy a hybrid existence with AIs. They've got to understand, you know, just like if you want to manage a company, you're managing other people. In the future, you're going to manage people and you're going to manage AIs. And or they might manage you. How do you do that? Just like how are some people better managers than other people? This episode is brought to you by The Happily Company. Their monthly date night subscription box, Date Box, has been used by thousands of couples to keep their relationships healthy and interesting month after month. Use code HEADROOM50 for 50% off your first date box. Some people and that, are, that's uh, an example, an extension of that comment would be that like our kids, when they're older, are going to be working with humans and those that are not human will be their yeah. colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that is understanding how they tick, just like people of different cultures have different ways to function sometimes. You know, part of it is understanding what you ask. I mean, you know, as somebody who's a CEO, I don't know everything people in my company do. They're much more expert in some places than I am. But you get a sort of list in your head of, you know, how do I question this? How do I get a feeling? How do I drive this forward? Same thing with AIs. And in fact, one of the interesting things, slightly off to the side here, but it's related. We've been experimenting a bit with tutoring, but because there are two parts to the whole education thing. One is what everybody discusses, which is personalized tutoring. How do we improve? You know, can AIs help with pedagogy? I think they can, by the way. I think there's a huge amount that can be done to improve pedagogy. And again, I think it's a mixture with human teachers. Slightly different role for teachers, but I think teachers are there, but different in many cases. And then there's the subject matter. Don't leave out the subject matter. The world has changed because we now as humans need to do different things. Don't go do the same thing. Don't replicate the machine as a third-rate machine, right? So that, that needs to change, and that's what's not changing the curriculum. Um, but 
we've been doing some experiments, you know, simple with with Wolfram attached to ChatGPT to see how tutoring might work. And it's quite interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done in guiding the student at different levels to understand how things might work. And actually, it's quite similar to, you see, one of the things we discovered with the computer-based maths effectively is a new subject. It's not like math. And so if we've been trying to get human teachers to deliver that, you, what, what you tell the human teacher, they never studied this subject. So actually, this structure we've been making to present a curriculum in a way that could be taught for a brand new subject isn't very different to what you might present an LLM tutor, right? It's the same sort of thing. So there are lots of interesting things you can do, I think, to improve it, but you've got to remember the subject. And I think that um, no doubt some people will be left behind, I'm afraid. There is a possibility of equalizing more. I think the idea of getting high-quality education across more people is a distinct, I'm not saying it'll necessarily happen, but I think there's a distinct possibility of that because it, it it's cheap. Because if you can have computers do some of it, AIs do some of it, that'll help. Do you think that, you mentioned something earlier, but we're talking about this, in essence, having to understand the personality, and we use that in quotes, of the AI or the chat GPT or what a colleague might be if it's not human. Does that, is that part of the answer, which is to say that going back to ourselves, to your earlier point, that maybe one of the key pieces of our of the next iteration of us is our ability to ask really good questions. Because if I'm going to work with something or someone that is not human, I'm going to have to refine and become, I would imagine, very adept at, and I don't think people are terribly good at, at asking questions. Because asking no, you need a lot of experience. You, you, you have to think critically to be able to ask a question. Absolutely. And maybe that is a, as a, as a side benefit to this is that when you're walking into chat GPT or you're typing, you know, you're trying to engage with it, you are forced to some degree to be able to ask really good questions and or to go down a path based on a very solid question. Part of what we've been professing with computational literacy is that in a sense, the process that you follow is a four step process in, you know, more or less. It's you define the question that you're really trying to ask. You abstract it to this fantastic language that allows you to uh, you know, put so many apparently disparate questions into a standardized language, normally code these days, which allows you then to run hundreds of years of experience on how to turn the question to the answer through this computation process. And then step four is you say, right, I got the answer, you know, X equals three, or much more complicated than that. And can I interpret that? But that's a critical interpretation. Did that make sense? Did it actually answer the question I meant to answer? Or did I answer a different question? Did I find, did I define the question properly? Did I do the, the wrong thing in this whole process? Did I make a mistake? That's so the two ends, step one and four, are absolutely critical and are basically not people are not learning those in mainstream education. They become much more critical the more complex the inter the, the automated calculation abstraction become. And you need to get much more experience of them. Just like if you're operating physical machinery that has become more and more and more complex, it's not just a matter of knowing how it works on the inside. It's knowing what you do, what different failure modes are, when they happen, experience of it. Um, you know, I often use the sort of car example. You know, you, most people don't know how their cars work in great detail. I mean, as in guilty you know, as charged, Conrad. <laughs> What's that? I'm guilty as charged. I do well, not. And, and, you know, 100. 
50 years ago or so, right? Most people who drove cars were the people who built them. So you would have known. Now they've got more and more and more automated to the point where it's a totally different thing, driving and, you know, and, and knowing how a piston goes in an engine probably won't help you, particularly if you've got an electric car, right? Because technology changed. It doesn't help you at all. But there's a difference between that and knowing what it feels like to go around a corner where you're just about to lose grip. It's related. It's related to the physics of the car, but it's not quite the same thing. It's an experienced thing. And that's what we need to build in people using modern technology, using AIs, using computers, using computational thinking. That's not being built. If you give somebody a very toy problem all the time in education, you know, snooker, you know, balls rolling on a table, because that's the only thing they can calculate by hand. They aren't going to get the experience of when you model a pandemic, <laughs> you know, what are questions to ask about the modeling, right? You know, what, what are things you should critically as a member of the public ask about what the expert just told me? That's interesting. They said we can tell you how many deaths are going to be in this scenario. Really? Really? I mean, is the model likely to be that precise? Can they? I mean, there are a lot of variables here. Does that make sense to me exactly? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what's not being built up. And you only get that by having computers fully deployed, by getting questions that are hard, by getting mess in there that you have in real life, not by trying to filter that all out to make it, quotes, easier for education. Should we be thinking also ahead, not from a doomsday perspective, but maybe more of a uh, preparedness? Should we be incorporating in ethicists to talk about what if there is a world where AI does advance to the point where we, and that, in essence, again, this is going <laughs> to, we are, our brains are not needed in the way in which we're talking about, which is into the anal, anal to analyze or, or to provide analyses based on multiple answers applying into new contexts and these sorts of things. What if it advances to the point where we don't need you or I to, in essence, solve problems? How do we then operate in a way that is productive, healthy, right? Um, forward thinking? I, oh, and or are we ignorant if we don't think that? I mean, can we think that there is? I, a mean, I, I don't know. You know, my view of, of life, maybe, maybe wrongly, is that there will always be problem solving thinking to be done it's okay. just a different a different stratum of of what you know i think if you lived in roman times there are some similarities to you know what we what we think about now which are actually strikingly similar surprisingly similar how human societies get set up in some sense, there's surprising similarities in, in things that recur. But then there are huge differences on a day-to-day -day basis. I think if you're a Roman, you know, the things that, you know, are you going to be eaten by a wild animal? Are you going to, you know, there are various things that basically are less likely now in most people's existence than than then. But there are brand new things, you know, which you just don't come come across. Um, uh, some of the you know, things we've been talking about, obviously not even, you know, vaguely on the horizon. So I, I, there is a scenario in which humans become redundant. I personally am not a big subscriber to that. I think there will be sets of humans, absolutely, who become redundant, just like there were in, in, and there'll be waves of effectively unemployment and dis, you know, and disenfranchisement. And those may be very bad, and particularly very bad for certain sets of people. I tend to, I mean, you know, the, the oft-stated things that, you know, with all the machinery was coming, I forget when these were made exactly in the 1930s and things, that we'd suddenly, you know, have all this leisure time. 
etc., etc., etc. I mean, look, the, the world population is massively bigger. I would say that most people don't have more leisure time than they had in the past, right? I think most people have far less leisure time in some some ways. We're much richer in developed countries. In you know, we've got a much. I mean, it, it depends how you measure standard of living, but in some ways, we've got a fantastically better standard of living. But that particular thing hasn't come to pass because we've pushed the boundaries so much more. We expect so much more. We have we we communicate so much faster. We expect the pace of life to be greater. You know, we expect to have more fulfillment in many ways. We expect to travel. All these things have come. And I think there'll be many, many more things. We'll expect to have AI experiences of everything else. Well, you know, there'll, there'll be all sorts of things that come that we haven't even imagined yet. And I think that will mean that there's more thinking, more employment, but it won't happen in a linear way. We're talking with Conrad Wolfram. You can learn more about Conrad at conradwolfram.com. Check out his book, The Maths Fix. Conrad, you wrote uh, on your website a few months ago, and I want to quote from here. Uh, it was about AI and change in education. You have very strong opinions, which I, I so appreciate. I think we're so nervous about sort of strong opinions in education as if the industry can't take it. <laughs> That's my own little soapbox there. Um, but you have in this in this post, you talk about transmitting um, subject change to education. Here's what you said. Education's record in echoing real-world subject transformation is diabolical. The ecosystem is stuck, held in place by the linchpin that is assessment. With maths and com computation decades on, it's pretty obvious what's happened in the real world and how divergent maths and education is from this, and yet the subject remains, remains tethered in the 19th century. Strong statement for sure. But I think an incredibly important position that you take, and I'm wondering how this does impact assessment, because, and again, not from someone that works in education or has, but from, let's say, a parent in middle America or in the middle of England, when they think about assessment in math, it's that you're going to assess my child on their ability to, in essence, put two elements together to find an answer kind of a thing, right? We've got, we've got variables. We're going to figure that out and we're going to find an answer. And it's going to be based on these answers. If my, my child can come up with the right answers, the assessment is going to reflect a positive score in their capabilities. Just very basic. You're sort of at the picnic at the local park. Well, in a world now where we have a very powerful tool, again, in chat GPT and AI writ large, does that not change the way in which we will have to think about assessing whether yeah, I mean, a young person is progressing? I think everything is wrong with mainstream assessment. And the absolute center of this is math. And the reason the center of this is math is because math is thought to be extremely important, probably the most important mainstream subject, the, the most quantitatively accessible, because it seems like it's either right or wrong. And the one that everybody pretty much, it's insisted, you know, takes at some level. Right to get into anywhere. I mean, it's 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 it's. I, I remind people the fact that in the nineteen fifties in Britain, if you want to get into a top university, you had to take Latin. I mean, what the relationship between learning the pluperfect of you know ammo, which is a verb in Latin, the pluperfect subjunctive or something of ammo, and reciting that, and you know how you use that, and you know doing physics at Oxford was, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there was some correlation, but I think we're pretty much at that for some of the math. Now, the, the math is wrong in so so just to take that subject why is it wrong it's wrong because what we're assessing is hand calculating which is absolutely at the center of not only what chat gpt can do but what computers have been able to do fantastically better than humans for decades 
right? So don't assess that as the main thing. What you want are these other steps of the process that are critical on much harder problems. The answer isn't right or wrong. If I ask you, you know, here are two versions of a website. Which one is doing better? Right, that's a math question. Right, I don't see that in math. It, it's not easily accessible, right? You can't say, well, you know, I mean, because there are arguments about what that means, what's better. Well, it depends what you're trying to do with the website. You know, it depends what you consider better is, you know, I and mean, there are all sorts of things you could ask, right? So we need to have open-ended questions and we need to assess them flexibly, which in fact is what happened years and years ago until it all got turned into this procedural stuff where everybody could challenge everything and you had to have a number, the power of the number to tell you how people had done, a simplistic number. So all of that needs to be unwound somehow. Now, in the end, we're assessing the wrong thing in something like math. I think in some of the other subjects, it's not as wrong, but we don't know. We don't know how the history essay is going to change with ChatGPT. So one of the points I made in another blog post is, with math, it's it's incredibly obvious that the subjects in the real world and subject in education has diverged for a couple of decades. In history, let's say, it's not so obvious yet what the effect of something like ChatGPT is going to be. Will essays still be a way to communicate history? Or will they change? Will the discourse change? Because now you don't need that discourse. Essays were a, a, a structure that we used when humans were writing, humans were reading. We don't need all that in the same way. It'll change. So we don't know the answer to that question yet. We can't know yet. That, that'll evolve. So we don't know what we're educating towards exactly. What we do know is that people, we need to have more open-ended questions, what happens in the real world, and we have more ability to assess those open-ended questions with ChatGPT en masse. So there's no reason uh, to stratify everything into multiple choice questions or things that have a very simple yes or no answer. So you can combine that with math as well. You can ask these open-ended questions and you can potentially get them assessed in the future with LLMs and other technology like our Wolfram Alpha. And I think you'll have a good shot at doing it en masse, but in a much more sophisticated way. So I think that allows us to change the model of assessment. Assessment is the linchpin, as I said. And if you can adjust that linchpin to something that assesses what I would consider a much better set of subjects and capabilities and outcomes, I think that will push what people are trying to learn. And that may change in all sorts of ways. It may change that, you know, you don't sit in an exam room for two hours to take your assessment at the end of, you know, three years of study. You get it assessed all the way through in some way that people have some confidence in, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lots of degrees of freedom this new technology brings in. Let's put a, a a wrapper on this discussion and go to what, what even outside of assessment, maybe even a level below the importance of assessment to get your thoughts on, which is to say teacher preparation, teacher education, colleges of education. I feel like it with the parent hat on that colleges of education need to be at the forefront of everything that we've been talking about, because if we don't have a workforce from the educator's perspective that can ask these big questions, they are right there in real time, probably spotting things that you or I wouldn't because we're not in the classroom to be able to understand the influence, the impact of AI in different forms and fashions, that if we don't support that next generation and current generation of educator, we're going to continue to be lapped by the technology in a way that has very significant impacts to our economy and our workforce. And really, the, I also think the mental health of young people, you oh, know, yeah. right? I don't want to sit there and think to myself, if I'm a young person or I'm I'm just now entering university, that 
you know, I'd love to really think hard and, and hard about where I want to work and what I want to do. But if that industry may be compromised by at, at some level, some degree, by this very accelerated <laughs> technology, I feel like I'm gonna have to go back to square one. And again, not to be doomsday, but I do think that the mental health element is reality. And one place to have active, I think, productive conversations is with the educators and educator to educator, department to department. Yeah, I mean, I would go back a step. I would say we need to get our outcomes straight. What is it that we think we're trying to achieve from, you know, math or history or, or education in general? And have we got that straight? At the moment they're listed out sort of in the, you know, section one, I mean, depends where you are, which curriculum, et cetera. Section 1.3, the student shall know how to, you know, do the following. Most of that is making it. We wrote a, an outcomes list for computational thinking that, that's on our website um, for computerbasedmath.org uh, that tries to at least put some general headings on what you'd want in that space. Right. And there are different people who've done good work in this, this space. So you need to go back to that. The next thing you need to do, it's an interesting problem, is how do you represent that in a way that humans and AIs could understand for tutoring? And actually, it's quite a similar problem in some ways. Now, you might want the humans and the AIs to do slightly different thing in the process with a human, but actually, what are the things you want them to hit? What are the outcomes you want them to achieve? What are some of the ways they could try to achieve those? Actually teaching that may be quite similar between those two. And so actually getting that structure, current curriculum spec documents that I see for most governments and curriculum bodies, they don't cut the mustard. The whole way in which that's done doesn't work. I would imagine they might give you a rash when you look at them, Conrad. Sorry? I said, I imagine they might give you a rash when you look at them. Like you, you Well, I mean, they're just a linear them, right? listing of what the person needs to know, basically, <laughs> right? right? And like that's the robot, way to work. Right? You... Isn't that the irony? Almost like a robot. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, when you've got automation, you need to know things at different levels. You see what I mean? What is an equation? I mean, to take a math example, what's an equ- what is machine learning? What is it, right? Now, I mean, there are different levels of knowing. There's a five-year-old thing. You can apply machine learning and basically, you know, you show it a bunch of things and it will, one form of it, it'll learn them and then try to recognize other things, just like you did as a five-year-old, right? Now, that's a five-year-old thing. That's not the guys building LLMs. (laughs) There's a different level, right? So just knowing machine learning doesn't mean anything by itself. That's sort of the mode. So we've got to represent our curricula much more intelligently to allow us to do sort of outcome building, which allows us then to set things up so humans and and, and AIs can tutor people effectively. And so there's a whole structure. We think we've, by the way, got a rather nice structure for thinking about how to do this, not full yet, but but in that direction. I think that will be critical in allowing us to deploy that to teacher training as alongside the LLMs and decide how we implement that. Um, and also, you know, what is it we're trying to find out, assess at the end? How are we looking at those things and helping the student move in the right direction so they they get what to do and, you know, they they have experience? Conrad, I want to make sure that people um, can, in essence, hopefully share, mind share with you or at least ride parallel even from uh, from their from their home computers and follow resources and or um, personalities, books, 
uh, websites that you think are doing a really good job of at least asking good questions in this arena outside of, and I do encourage people to check out conradwolfram.com. The Maths Fix is a very, it's an excellent book. It will make you think um, as it should uh, in that manner about our education and the way in which we're thinking about an incredibly important, if not the most important subject academically. Uh, where do you, where do you go? What are some resources or recommendations you might have for people that are interested? Yeah, I'm I'm not good on this actually because I I usually you know <laughs> oh, I, I no, go to, <laughs> but um, look I, I mean we've tried to put together a, a set of things you know uh, for example we in terms of direct learning we've got a, a wolf from you that has a lot of great sort of computational thinking type resources I think there's a lot of discussion my brother's site as well stephenwolfen.com is a slightly different slant to my site on you know, AIs and different things to think about there. Um, it's, um, uh, you know, it, there are lots of different angles in from this, so to speak. So, I mean, those are the ones I know well, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, and, and it's a busy time. So it's, it's quite hard to absorb everybody's different angles. I'm sure there's some fantastic angles out there. Um, I think it's good to keep in one's mind the sort of clarity of, certainly in education, this sort of, you know, um, and one point, by the way, I didn't make about the whole curriculum setup is how it can also change quickly with time. One of the problems with the current setup is that you, you can't change it quickly because of the, it's it's all sort of embedded down to take a long time for each stage to make sure that nobody messes it up, um, which unfortunately causes a, a giant mess up instead. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I just encourage people to keep very focused on you know, what is it that we need to learn how are we best going to deliver that and assess that with the modern tool sets we've got? How do we have the broadest? I mean, as I say to people, I'm I'm all for, um, you know, I think you need to be explicit about what math, what you know, what the outcomes are you're trying to do. Don't just say I'm doing a subject because it's good for you, right? Be explicit, but the explicitness can be much broader than our current range of what we think is important or we claim is important so don't just say because you know they passed the math test by adding you know doing multiplications well right that's too narrow i want a much wider thing you know they could think about these sorts of problems in a constructive way they could argue this they could do broader things so i I'm, i want to be explicit but much broader in our outcomes and our assessments and i think that's a better way to drive it than just sort of saying you know you know it, you should do what's good for people and you should understand that math is good for you. Well, I, you always make me think, Conrad, I hope that in my, my small way, we've been able to provide a little bit of platform in this, in this discussion and provide some substance to it. Um, there right now, there are no answers, but I think the answer really is to be curious and, uh, and you do that in spades. And I think you're a fantastic representation of your industry and really just larger global questions that we need so that we can enjoy our time here with all the all the benefits of the fantastic science that has taken place um, for generations. I want to encourage people go to conradwolfram.com, uh, connect with Conrad, check out his book. And uh, once again, I want to thank Conrad for his time today. I know I am uh, more informed as a result of this discussion. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.